Welcome to the Special Ed Files. I'm Jennifer Laviano, a special education attorney. And I'm Julie Swanson, a special education advocate. Case by case, we expose what really goes on in special education. Each episode, we open up a case based on real life experiences. We reveal where things went wrong and explain the legal implication. Finally, we solve the problem so you don't have to. Let's open up a file. All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the individual's identities. Let's open the file on Ricky and the restraint. Before we get to the facts, I want to let everybody know that we have a guest today. Her name is Stephanie, and she is Ricky's mother. And we'll be talking to Stephanie at the Rewind. So, Jen, let's get straight to the facts. Okay. So, you know, this is, while we're going to be talking to Ricky's mom about Ricky and his case, we want to start by saying there are hundreds of Rickies that Julie and I have come across. And this is a, today's episode is a very difficult one for us because we're going to be covering a topic that is highly volatile and controversial about which many people have incredibly strong feelings. And even within the very small community of special education advocacy, this is a a hot button uh, topic for a lot of people. It is uh, a topic that is difficult for educators. It's a topic that is difficult for families. It is a topic that is difficult for advocates. And that topic is restraint of students with disabilities in our public schools. And uh, so the facts of this case are sort of an amalgamation of the many situations in which Julie and I have been involved over the years, where our clients have been physically restrained by the educators in the public schools. And um, and then we're going to get to Ricky uh, when we get to and the or secluded. And or secluded, yes. And so seclusion, you know, is, is um, and I'm going to start by some definitions, Julie, if that's, right. if that's helpful. So um, a, a wonderful resource for families in general, uh, but also on this topic in particular, is COPA. COPA is the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. Their uh, website can be found at copaa.org. They are very involved at the federal level in this topic and in uh, assisting uh, school districts and families in uh, tackling this very difficult topic. And on their Safe Schools page, uh, what they say is restraints include physical force, mechanical devices or drugs that temporarily restrict freedom of movement or control behavior. Seclusion includes the use of locked rooms or other spaces from which students are unable to leave voluntarily. Aversive procedures use painful stimuli in response to behaviors that are deemed unacceptable by their caregivers. All aversive techniques have in common the application of physically or emotionally painful stimuli. So there are some definitions, okay? So we want to say that many students have very challenging behaviors, and we understand that, and we're very sympathetic to the difficult decisions that educators need to make in this regard. But the fact that this is a controversial and difficult topic makes it even more important that we're talking about it. And we want to make sure that we're all very transparent with one another about what our concerns are in this regard. Uh, Julie, you know, you and I have seen this firsthand uh, with many of of the students we've worked with over the years. You know, Jen, one of the things that I will um, unfortunately see uh, sometimes is poor communication from the school district to the parent and perhaps sometimes misleading. And whether or not that's intentional or not, 
the end result is, is that the parent is getting messaging about what happened that's different from what was reported to them through, you know, a, a restraint and seclusion report, if, if they even get a written report. And what can yeah. really matter in a restraint and res- seclusion report is what's called ABC data. A for antecedent, B for behavior, C for consequence. It's so important to know what the antecedent was. What was the setting event? What happened that triggered that behavior? And so often when I've seen reports, um, they're not as thorough as they should be. And then sometimes parents will get the report, but they may get a call from another informant within the school district saying, I'm really worried about your son or daughter, you know, you know, this this shouldn't be happening. Or perhaps a, another student who saw it happen reports something to the parents about what happened. And so I think just getting that very clear messaging from the school district as to not only that it happened, but with the very clear and precise details of what happened before, what was the actual behavior, and what was the consequence, the remedy, what was done to respond to to the behavior. Excellent point, Julie. We've seen some common themes in situations where students are being restrained and secluded. And let's be very clear, when this is happening, there's likely some very serious behavior going on. And um, because this is not the norm, we don't want to give the, the impression at all that it is the norm that students who have disabilities are being restrained or secluded in our public schools. It isn't. However, Uh, when it is happening, it is usually a crisis for everybody. And especially if it's happening uh, on a regular basis, sometimes more than once in a day. I've had situations where, and and therefore the communication is so important, but is, as Julie noted, sometimes inaccurate or misleading. And that just makes the situation so much worse because the parent is now distrustful that the information they're getting from the school is in fact accurate. And uh, you know, I've had situations where my clients have siblings in the school who's who have witnessed the the uh, restraint, and yet the, the the children come home and the parents have no idea about it. They didn't get a report. Nobody told them that the child was restrained. And this is especially problematic if you have a child who is nonverbal and who can't tell their mm-hmm. parents what happened in school, or you have a child who's coming home with bruises, or you have a child who's um, who is starting to react very negatively to going to school and the parent isn't sure why. Mm-hmm. And you know, many states do require that school districts provide on an annual basis data as to how often restraint is occurring in their school district. And for that reason, the, the data should be maintained very, very carefully. Um, but I, I hate to say this, Julie, but I want to say 95% of the cases I've had over the years where students, my client has been restrained um, more than once, there is a factual dispute about the school, the documentation the school has of how often it happened and what the parents believe based on phone calls they received, based on, you know, other parents mentioning things to them, their own children. Uh, it is, and it just makes a very difficult situation that much worse. So mm-hmm. communication is key. Right. And, you know, I think one of the other themes that I see is, uh, well, and again, you know, we, we've we mentioned before we live in Connecticut, right? Um, where I see a, a really terrific response overall to how to respond, right, to a student who perhaps needs to be restrained and secluded or secluded. And what I mean by that is the extensive training that they want staff to go through. What 
I don't see enough of is the prevention piece. And Mm -hmm. this is where the training Mm -hmm. of the staff who are working with the student, whether it's the paraprofessional or um, any other related service providers or other folks who are working with the student, what are those prevention methodologies? And what is the what is what is the function of the behavior, which is why I get back to um, really making sure that there are experts involved in the in, on the team who are looking at the behavior from an angle where we can figure out what's happening and why and what we can put in place to prevent this from happening. So I'd love to see, you know, yes, where there's so much um, training that goes on on the on the on the end, the the other end. I'd like to see more on the prevention side. A hundred percent, because these situations they often they often escalate, especially when we're talking about restraint and seclusion. For many students who have disabilities that I've represented, it was because they were being secluded that the behavior started to escalate, um, and we later realized that that you know I've I've clients who are who are acting up so to speak, I hate that term, but that's the the term that um, is regularly used in IEP meetings because they're in a classroom separate from their non-disabled peers and they want to be back in that classroom and it escalates. And then we get involved with restraint and unfortunately it becomes sort of a go-to. And, and, and I just want to be really clear. There are, when I say this topic is controversial, there are parents who absolutely will tell you that because the school was able to restrain their child, their child is still alive because the child was engaged in such significant self-injurious behavior that if they hadn't been restrained, they would have been able you know, to, to continue to injure themselves to the point of possibly death. And then there are those parents who can also tell you that their child died because somebody was not properly trained and or their child was being restrained improperly or too frequently. And there are children who have died. If you go to the COPA site and you go to the safe schools. There are articles about it. There are studies about it, including from the federal government. This is very, very important and very upsetting. And one of the things that is really difficult is that what, if you're, especially if you're talking about young children, what can happen is that very quickly they start to distrust the adults in school and, um, and start to think that the teachers are, are not safe and school is not safe. And then we get into a school avoidance issue or a school phobia issue. It, it, these are some of the worst situations that we deal with. And so um, those are those are the kinds of cases that we see. And Julie, that piece about training and prevention is so important. You know, uh, many students, the types of students who have behaviors that may lead to a, to a seclusion or restraint do have one-to-one paraprofessionals or another adult who is assigned to them as part part of their IEP, their individualized education program, that plan, that document that's developed by the team, um, including the parents. And unfortunately, those are not always the most highly trained professionals in the building. In fact, in some situations, they may be the least trained person on the team. And so if your child has an IEP that calls for a one-to-one and your child's behavior is interfering to this extent, you want to make sure that that person is getting high-level training on restraint, on recognizing those antecedents, and that data is being collected with fidelity. Well, and also uh, in my experience, sometimes 
you know, there isn't a higher level of training to come in on the prevention side until it's already turned into a crisis. Yeah. And I think it's also important to remember that behavior is communication, right? Yes. And by the time a child is showing any signs of behavior whereby uh, where the team has to make a decision to restrain or seclude, something's not right. Yeah. We need to press a reset button and bring in, you know, the the experts that, that the team needs to be collaborating with and just start all over and say, okay, what do we need to do to set this child up for success, right? Yes. Um, and, you know, Jen, just before we go on to the law, um, you know, we also want to make sure, I know here in Connecticut, we have a, we actually have a, a regulation that says you cannot incorporate restraint and seclusion into a behavior intervention plan. Um, I don't think that is the case across the, all of the United States. It is not. Um, but if you, you know, you want to be weary of if you have a behavior intervention plan that includes restraint and seclusion, um, you may want to rethink that and make sure that that is not in the plan, but it's very explicit that that is the absolute last go-to option should things escalate to a, a really dangerous point. And, you know, just one last thing before going on to the law is that this not only tr can potentially traumatize the student involved, but the other students who are watching oh, the, yes. this happen. And what does that do to the dignity of the child? And what does it do to the soul of the bystanders who are watching? Not only the, the children, the other students, but also to the adults. And there are really no winners when when this has to be done in a way that um, strips people of their dignity and um, and so you know the trauma that can be um, put on people as a result of this is really um, you know astounding can be astounding and I know um, Stephanie is going to be talking to us about that right. um, after the law so let's get into the law Jen. So uh, let's start with the law on restraint. Um, there is currently no federal law on restraint and seclusion. Uh, there are many states that have laws on the books, ours included, about how, when, and if a restraint and seclusion can occur in the public schools. And so you should absolutely look to your state. Um, your State Department of Education hopefully has a, um, a, a page on it or, a, you know, some, some information that you can review as a parent so that you understand what the obligations of the school district um, are in terms of informing you, when it can occur, et cetera, um, because there is currently no federal law that governs this issue. There is a portion of the IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that talks about positive behavioral supports. I'll get to that in a minute. But COPA has been spearheading um, with numerous stakeholders in the um, in Congress the um, ke uh, Keeping All Students Safe Act. It's uh, been already put put forth on the on the floor. It's not yet um, enacted, but it is something that we think will be moving forward. And we certainly want families who are impacted by this issue to be very vocal to their legislators about this bill, because all students should be safe in, in our public schools. And um, that legislation addresses restraint and seclusion from a federal level. Um, currently, there is no federal law that governs restraint and seclusion, unfortunately. Um, in terms of uh, the IDA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, it does have language um, in, in the statute and in the regulations that says that um, 
IEP teams, individualized education program teams, must uh, have the use of positive behavioral interventions and supports in the cases of a child whose behavior impedes the child's learning or that of others. That reference is from 34 CFR 300.324, for those of you who are interested in looking it up. And so we are supposed to, under federal law, be incorporating into students' IEPs whose behavior is um, impacted in this way, uh, the kind of positive behavioral supports that um, Congress wanted to make sure are in place, that we're not going to punitive measures, restraint and seclusion as our default, right? We want to be starting by making sure that we're addressing behavior in a positive way and um, in reinforcing those kinds of positive behaviors. And so that, that is in the federal special education law. But until and unless we have federal legislation that governs, governs this issue, each state is left to their own devices as to how they address this issue. And as one would imagine, some states are more uh, active at protecting the rights of students than others. And unfortunately, um, there have been thousands and thousands of examples of restraint in our public schools. There have been many deaths of students. We can't say strongly enough how important it is that we have federal le legislation on this topic. And, you know, just another word about COPA, Jen, um, you know, just I, I can't say enough, and I know Jen can't as well, just to say that, you know, should you really familiarize yourselves with them? Um, COPA is the leader in the nation for um, really having our students' um, best interest in um, improving uh, matters in special education that impact so many of our students. And um, this legislation that they are spearheading is so important, and they're doing such great work. Yes. for our students with disabilities. And joining COPA is a just a good practice for almost any parent because it, there are listservs, there are tons of resources for members. Membership for parents and students is $50 a year. Membership for military families is $25 a year. So, you know, we, that's our COPA plug. Um, and then in terms of the law in general, in the kind of factual scenarios that we're dealing with with Ricky, and then we'll be um, having Stephanie join us in the Rewind, uh, you know, if a child is being restrained and secluded repeatedly, I think it's fair to say that the free and appropriate public education to which that child is entitled is not happening. Um, because, you know, one would, would expect and hope that the behavior would be brought to the point of control enough that the child can access and benefit from their education. And if not, then we need to be doing something differently. Right. So to the extent that that is happening in the cases right. where um, students are being regularly restrained and secluded, one would say it's time to revisit that individualized education program. So now on to the rewind, and I'd like to introduce our guest, Stephanie. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. And we know that um, you had an experience with your own son. Um, and on that note, we'd, we welcome you and thank you so much for um, sharing some of your thoughts and with us today. So on that, could you talk to us about um, your son and and perhaps some of the things you're comfortable sharing with us? Sure. Thank you. Thank you both for having me on here. I do feel that this is a really important topic and parents are the last to know because how would we know, you know, the law? How would we know what's important? How do we know what's appropriate? And that I feel like I've done a lot of catching up but it was after the fact. So just like we talked about, when you have a restraint scenario, there should be a whole, you know, what happened before, 
what led up to it? Why did you get to the point that you had to restrain this child? And that's how you figure out how to avoid those in the future. And that's the part that as a mom, I mean, I would get some sort of messaging that it happened, but no, none of that other information. I had no idea why. I had no idea what had, what had led up to it. All I knew is it was happening and the duration of how long uh, he had been restrained. So, you know, as a parent, you, you want to ask why. And I felt that I was as involved a parent as I could be in public school. I was constantly calling IEP team meetings. I was constantly calling regular meetings. I was in regular touch with the teachers trying to figure out what was going on. Because one of the issues was this was behavior that was not happening at home. I was not, he was not at home having to be restrained. I never learned how to properly restrain a child or because in other environments other than school, this was not his behavior. So I do feel like it became a vicious cycle where there was resistance to whatever the demand was, and then he would resist, and I feel he was overwhelmed. I know this now. And then he would lash out or resist or whatever. And unfortunately, the restraint just became the go-to. That's yeah. you get so, you know, and so once we eventually were not in that environment anymore for learning, because I just had to say sort of as a detective, like, well, you know, maybe there's someplace else or some other environment that he could actually learn something instead of fighting you people all day long. And once we were able to find that, it was, there were several years of the fight or flight still was really present. It would come on quickly, but it was a better environment for him to be able to calm down faster. And then once, you know, I found, when I really figured out the whole reason why he was so upset and what was happening and what was triggering the behavior mm -hmm. that led to restraints, I just was frankly furious and sick to my stomach that we really never figured this out years ago. Yeah. And, you know, anyway, that's, so it was years and I feel like we, we worked really hard to, overcome it and get past it but it took years and years to to get over what's happening stephanie let me ask you this and, and thank you again so much for joining us i know this is a difficult topic and, and hard to relive but just for our listeners so they have a sense how frequently was ricky being restrained and and you know over the course of how long it was it would at least be every Every other week, there was something to that was several minutes, like five minutes, six minutes. And, and I would only know because, again, there was a report that would come home that listed other things. And again, no, knowing what I know now, like one of the things I saw, for example, there was a regular time that he was being restrained, like a Tuesday at 1030 or whatever it was. And I remember thinking, like, well, what's going on at 1015 that he's getting so riled up that they have to, you know, restrain him every Tuesday at 1030. And I found out that after the fact that he was, they were taking him to the OT room and doing some sort of sensory diet. And, but they were only doing half of it because the one-to-one -one wasn't trained, was not an OT. And they would literally like get him riled up 
physically and not sort of bring him down, which is what they need to do in OT to sort of help the sensory system, vestibular, I don't know how it all works, but it's a whole program. And they didn't have time to do the whole program. So basically, they would take him to the OT room, get him riled up, bring him back to the classroom while he was still really elevated. And then he would act out, and then he would end up being restrained. And I had to find that out, you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and and is it safe to say that at the time they didn't, they weren't intentionally doing that? It's at- it's. Absolutely. You're right. They were not. Of course not. They want him to be as calm and happy in school as possible. But it was just and it was the sensory diet was something that was put in as a let's help him. And but because it was not implemented correctly. And that's what I found out again after the fact. You can have the best behavior plan in the world. But if it's not implemented by someone with enough training to really make it work, then you could do more harm than good. This is this is where I stress and I cannot stress it enough that the devil is in the details and the training that the person receives with the constant the constant training and the oversight by someone who is ultimately responsible for that goal. And in this case, um, Stephanie, that would be the the occupational therapist themselves. Right. Because Mm -hmm. the occupational therapist wasn't the one delivering implementing the program, so to speak. And it's that fidelity piece, right? And the oversight of that goal and that program he was doing that you innocently, by not doing it correctly, end up doing harm that you don't even realize. But it's like anything we do in life, you know, you either do something the right way or you do it the wrong way. And unfortunately, sometimes when we even unintentionally do something the wrong way, those details matter. And in your son's case, you know, created a firestorm that you, you took you too long to figure out before yeah. it became a crisis, which is our whole point here. That's right. And Stephanie, you know, I, I, with Ricky, did he talk to you about it when this was happening? He, I mean... He got the idea that he was just a bad kid who yeah. would get in trouble all the time. And and that's who he thought he was. And that's, you know, he, he was he's a very aware child and very, you know, aware of who he is and his place in the world. And, and that's only, you know, increased as he's gotten older. But but to be the kid who's always in trouble and always sent to the office or always held down, that was a um that has a lot to do with who he thought he was. Again, we've come a long, long way only because we've had an incredible team and I've been able to educate myself quite a bit, but we were not headed in a good place if we had continued. Yes. Well, and doesn't it become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Once you get a notion in your head that, well, this is just the way it's going to be for me. And this is sort of my MO, Yeah. Um, especially for so many children. Um, yeah. Which is, is just unfortunate. But and you Stephanie, know, oh, I'm sorry, Julie, I didn't mean no, to interrupt ahead. you. I just had a question. When you changed his, his educational environment, did the restraint continue? No, never. No, not once. Wow. And I'm not saying he wasn't 
<laughs> he was still in a lot of fight or flight and would go mm-hmm. in quickly because that was his habit. And that's yeah. the thing that once you, you know, that's just what they do. Um, it was a real habit for him to go there fast. But because we were in, in a setting where he could calm down quicker and mm-hmm. there was he was not, you not meeting sort of might with might, if you will, because yes. there's no one holding him down. There's no one doing anything like that. Um, it was a completely different way of dealing with him. And he felt, I believe, much safer. And mm-hmm. he didn't have to go there. To, to that point, Stephanie, you know, we're, and, and, you know, as we've said, there's hundreds upon hundreds of Rickies um, that who Jen and I have, um, you know, helped their families. And sometimes it's not just the setting, right? It's mm-hmm. obviously the setting and the training of all the folks. But unfortunately, what I've seen far too many times is by the time the team finally understands or figures out what they need to do to set the child up for success and stop this cycle of restraint and or seclusion, there has been a a, a deterioration of the relationships. And it's almost impossible sometimes to go back and press that reset button in the same place. And that's the emotional toll that can sometimes take place when you have been with a team and a child has experienced restraints and seclusions so much, how do you get that trust back? And how do you press that reset button? It, it's, you know, I, I don't have the degree, the psychological uh, training to to answer that question. <laughs> um, but I think that can also be a huge barrier um, when crises have gone on for so long that there's just this pattern, that, as you say, that that's just who your son became and what he expected. Yeah. And, and as a, as a mother, as a parent, uh, and, and I, you know, I, I just hope that it's so important that our listeners understand. I imagine this impacted you um, as a parent as well, knowing that he was being restrained in school. Can you oh, tell us a little bit about how it, how it impacted you? Sure. I mean, it was, you know, I will say that, you know, he is my, I mean, I'm, my focus, my job is him. This is it. That has really been it. That's been my career focus. <laughs> and yeah. having, and, you know, personally, I was a very good student and I love school and all the rest of it. So when school was starting, even with the disability, I thought, okay, well, we can manage this and this will be fine. And to hear over and over again, to read the reports, it, it was very, very hard and very frightening because I there were many, many days that I thought this will never get better. This will never, ever get better. And there's no way of minimizing this feeling or this scenario because it's not like, because, you know, when they say if your kids aren't doing well, you're not doing well. You're just not. Mm-hmm. There's yep. no way of saying, well, this isn't that important and you shouldn't really focus on. No, it's all there is when you're a parent. Yes. Kids' success and happiness is all there is. And my kid was so unhappy for so long that it tears me apart. I mean, I will say I have kept all of the emails, all of the reports, everything. I have them locked away, but I have them there because, you know, it is a reminder once in a while of 
where you know how far he's come but it's it's a reminder of of what happens too and I, you know and I again I do feel that Julie like you were saying in many many cases it was well intentioned mm-hmm. it no one ever said I don't want to meet with you I don't want to talk to you I don't want to but it was just the system itself and and it wasn't just changing the setting it was changing the expertise of the people with mm-hmm. him as well those were the two big things right. that helped us a great deal but yes as a parent it the is truly the hardest thing I've ever gone through and there was no no way I could figure out of making it better other than making him better having him be happy you know my mother used to say you're only ever as happy as your unhappiest child and there's a lot of truth to that and you know I I think one thing that's really important to to bring out is how traumatizing this is for everybody involved if you've never witnessed a child being restrained by adults. Uh, it's, it's horrific. It's horrific for everyone. It's horrific for the educators. It's horrific mm-hmm. for the family. It's horrific for the child. And so we want so much to do what we can to prevent restraint and seclusion as much as we can. And so, you know, thank you so much for sharing your story and Ricky's story with us. Uh, Stephanie, we greatly appreciate it. We know that even though it sounds like things have been really good for a long time for Ricky, um, and we're thrilled about that, it's hard to relive it. And we appreciate you opening up for all of us. Sure. And you know, Jen, since we're talking about mothers, my mother used to always say, oh, go to yourself. And what that means is, imagine if it were happening to you. Yeah. Uh, imagine if as adults, someone was restraining us. You know, it's go to yourself. Nobody, nobody wants that for your, not only your child, but yourself. Um, And so anyway, on that note, um, Stephanie, again, I echo Jen. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And on that, we'll get straight to the verdict. The verdict. So the verdict here is uh, several fold. First, join COPA. If you're the parent of a child with a disability, I I can't say it enough. And it's not just because I'm on the board and I used to head the membership committee and all of that. It it has changed my life. And I feel like I've been so blessed to be um, so well-educated on these issues as an attorney. And so I I constantly say to myself, I don't know how parents who don't have advocates or, or attorneys possibly begin to navigate the system on their own, especially when they're emotionally invested in their child. And that clouds every single decision you make in a good way, one hopes, but sometimes when you're emotional, it's hard to see things clearly. Um, and COPA is just, a, it is a, a beacon of light in this very, very dark world sometimes of trying to figure out this system and how to um, how to navigate it. So join COPA, also doing so on this topic will mean that you'll get alerts for when you need to act to contact your legislature, uh, legislator, excuse me, on um, any pending federal legislation that may come up um, or, you know, hopefully the Keeping All Students Safe Act will be voted on someday soon and you'll be given notification if you're a member of um, Act Now and Action Alerts and things of that nature. So that's one piece of the verdict. And Uh, Julie, go ahead. Can I just, uh, just as a a tale uh, following that, and you may have just been poised to say this, but you know, I think parents should also find out what's going on in their own state. Yes. Um, there may be a group who is spearheading 
um, legislation in your own state around restraint seclusion. Um, understand if you have any regulations around it um, in your state. So that's a you know, quick phone call to your State Department of Special Education um, or even making a call to your district to say, can you tell me where I can find out more about it? So just don't forget to act on the local level as well as the national level. With, with Great suggestion, Julie. And then the other verdict here, Julie, is one that it seems to be the verdict on a lot of our cases, which is communication is key. Um, you know, if you if you're in a situation where uh, that either your child or a child that you're working with is um, their behavior is impeding them so much that this is happening, you know you need to be crystal clear in all communications. We approach this from the perspective and the um, absolute belief that the educators are as uh, concerned about this as as the parents are, and that they know that this is a crisis, but. That communication is so important that everyone is on the same page about what happened, when it happened, what was the antecedent, what was the actual behavior, what was the consequence. As as uh, Stephanie was saying, that she had to put together that something must be happening Tuesday mornings at 10.15 to lead Ricky to be restrained at 10.30 on Tuesdays. Um, you know, should have been something that everyone was trying to get to the bottom of far sooner than than she put put it together. Um, and hopefully, a number of incidents could have been avoided. So, uh, communication is key. That's another piece of this verdict, Julie. And insisting upon a clear um, understanding of the ABC data again. That's antecedent behavior consequence. Those details matter. Um, and and bringing in the experts. Um, no waiting around for, oh, let's see how it goes. No, if there's restraint and or seclusion happening um, and there aren't uh, the, the, the clear expertise that is required on the team, um, you know, who can figure that out in an expedient fashion, um, get that happening ASAP, um, you know, and, and figure out what's going on so you can put a plan in place to set your child up for success. And, you know, Jen, as we discussed prior to, to all of this, and when we were talking about planning for today's, uh, for this episode, there really are no winners um, when children are restrained, restrained and or secluded. You know, there are, I'm sure if we interviewed the adults who had to be involved in these restraints and seclusions, nobody is saying, oh my gosh, yes, this is really what we love to do and why we right. need educators. Um, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a winning situation for the student, the other students who have to watch it, anyone who is involved in it. So, um, we're glad that there is a, a national effort spearheaded by COPA to, um, this, you know, um, to help with this situation, bring some clarity around it. And this is an ongoing issue and, um, we wish you all well, if in fact, um, you're worried about any students you work with or your own child who um, is being restrained and or secluded. And on that note, we'll close the file on Ricky and the restraint. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Until we open up our next file, this is Jen Laviano. And Julie Swanson. The Special Ed Files is a production of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. Our executive producer is Dave DeRoche, Quinnipiac University Director of Community Programming. Our producer is Brian Murphy. File closed.